millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Sometime during my life, toilet paper became bathroom tissue. I wasn't notified of this. No one asked me if I agreed with it. It just happened. Toilet paper became bathroom tissue. Sneakers became running shoes. False teeth became dental appliances. Medicine became medication. Information became directory assistance. The dump became the landfill. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at the Times. On this podcast, we're going to highlight things to look for as you edit your copy or someone else's, particularly on deadline. A lot of this can and should become second nature over time. Today's topic, sharpening the story. First, let's be clear. Lane and I are both editing her copy, right? She takes the first pass after she's done with her draft. She's going back through. She's nipping. She's tucking. She's tweaking. Then it comes my way. So if we're successful at what we do, we have to be really passionate in pursuit of the story and dispassionate in the editing process. Or as my buddy Denise says, the magic's in the editing. Yes? Okay. So um, we're going to go through some pointers. And I, I do this as a presentation. I'm giving Lane a little bit of a break this week, and she can she's going to dive in here. But talking about some of the things to look for, right, as you're editing your copy. Um, And I start by saying that I think the two most important things are clarity and momentum. You never want to leave readers confused. If you're confusing them, they're going to stop. But you're you're also, that sort of totally goes against what you're trying to do. And you want to keep them moving, right? Especially in this day and age where we're fighting a lot of competition for their time and attention. And so you've got to do the kinds of things that are going to make your story sharper and just pace it and move it along. So here's some of the things that I'm looking for Lane's looking for, we're looking for together. Um, And we're going to start with quotes. Hate them. I hate them. (laughs) No, Uh, which is not to say dialogue, love dialogue. Uh, But quotes are different, okay? So quotes, um, I think when we all start in the business, as, you know, we talked at the last podcast about note-taking, we sat there and we write down all these things people say. And then we have this sort of almost this template that we start writing journalism stories in where it's, you know, graph, graph, quote, graph, graph, quote. I'm sure I ended every story for the first two years of my career on a quote. And I had to find my way to that damn quote, no matter what it was. Um, And then you realize, you know, you're working alongside these people who know how to write. They write so much better than people speak. And yet you'll find every day in whatever website you go to, the New York Times, the Washington Post, anywhere across America, still a lot of quotes. Um, And quotes are people talking to reporters, not people talking to other real people, just people saying something and the the reporter just sort of throwing it out there as if it's, it's, 
doing a lot of a lot of great work. And a lot of times it isn't. So I'm always looking at the quotes in a story. Well, and I feel like a lot of times we set up a quote and tell yeah. you what the quote's going to be. Right. And then we give you the quote. You know, it's, it gets real repetitive sometimes yeah. there. Are they dull or they're flabby? Um, but yes. if they go longer than two lines when I type it, two, more than two lines in a column, I know it's too long of a quote. Right. You know? And I think, you know, it's like obscenity. You, you know it when you see it. The good ones just jump out at you. And yes, somebody said something in a way that really captured the moment well. But otherwise, damn, I'd rather have Lane DeGregory write it than have some, somebody she's, she's, she's interviewing tell me that. So, And also, they do. They tend to drag the story down a lot of times. Or like you said, yeah, there's a lot of that. Let me set up something, and then I'm just going to have the person tell you what I just set up. Why? Stop. Maria Carrillo really likes to talk about writing. I like to talk about writing, said Maria Carrillo. You know, like exactly. stuff happens all the time. So then you go along your career as we have, and then we embrace dialogue, right? And we've, so we've talked about that here on the podcast here and again. But dialogue being real people talking to each other, it's still quoted material. But it's not someone trying to summarize something or give you something in sort of a canned fashion, right? Which is how people tend to experience us as journalists. They think you're going to ask a couple questions, and what you're looking for is a soundbite, and I'm going to give you a soundbite. Soundbites are terrible. They're not, they're not what we do. We want something that's real and feels genuine. So if it's real and it feels genuine, great. If it doesn't, then what I'd rather have is you come and put me in the moment, have a conversation. That's what you're looking for all the time now, right? Absolutely, yeah. And and. You know, I, I think a lot of times quotes are so flat, and when people try to sum up their feelings or their emotions, I was really scared. Okay, show me you were scared. You know, like to say that doesn't mean anything. Well, and a lot of times they'll throw that right in the middle of a scene. So I'm like, oh, we're in the middle of a hurricane scene, and somebody's saying, I was really scared. So now I know that you're no longer in that scene because now you're talking to me, right? So why did you do that to me? Why did you take me out of it, you know? Yeah, don't give me the reflection while you're still in the moment of experiencing it, right? And I think you got to get comfortable. I don't, I'm not sure all writers are comfortable doing with very few quotes. Um, and maybe a lot of editors aren't because visually, you know, they think, oh, this is breaking up the copy or something. Somehow it's a trigger. You know, look, oh, and oh, we're proving to people that we actually talk to this person as if their name and whatever you put next isn't proof enough, right? Um, so really, if you go back through your story and you focus on the quotes, are they worthy? <laughs> Do they belong there? And Could you say it better yourself as yeah. a writer? And, and, and do you have dialogue? Maybe you have dialogue and you didn't use it. Um, you know, use that instead. Keep us in the moment. Um, all right. I, always, I ask people to think about um, adding specificity wherever possible. So avoiding abstractions, cliches, vagueness. Um, I'm sure when you're going back through, sometimes you're looking for that kind of thing. Do you have a specific here instead of you know, a conversational or casual way you might write it that, you know, doesn't really deal with details. Yeah, I, I ask those three questions about every detail, like, okay, you're smoking a cigarette, what brand is the cigarette? You know, I, mm -hmm. I mean, I think the brand name, like as, as far down as you can get about whatever it is, mm -hmm. is, is really telling, right. you know. Right. And then because, and the beer, name the beer. Right. right. Is it Pabst? Or are you a Heineken drinker? It tells you something about the person, maybe, right? Um, but you'll find, I think, a lot of times people write um, – it's, it's not lazier. It's just sort of you write in sort of the way you talk, and sometimes it's without those details. And so avoid that when you can. Um, I tell people to look for jargon and journalese, right? 
And I have this example. So working on this big project with these two reporters a few years ago, we were writing about chemical plant safety, and we had this sentence. And the sentence was, the plant is near religious institutions and educational facilities. And we must have read that sentence about 80 times. And finally, we're getting ready to publish. And one of the reporters busts out laughing, and he says, are you talking about churches and schools? Is that what we're talking about? Are we talking about churches and schools? Why did we call them religious institutions and educational facilities, right? We did because we get into this talk, this jargony kind of way of looking at the world, right? Because we're dealing with people who are jargony. Like all the things, a lot of the people we cover speak in jargon. Um, Higher education and court cases. Oh, Those terrible. are the two that it's oh, so jargonly. Please. You need an interpreter, yeah. you know? Yeah. Input. When's the, what, does, do you ever ask anybody for input? No. <laughs> um, so anyway, I, I, t- I ask people to look at that, be thinking of that. Um, and then clauses. I don't know if you're a, a clause. Like I, clauses, I'm almost as, as um, on, that, on that level with <laughs> how I feel about quotes. Um, I used to do a lot of clauses when I wrote, and now I try to be subject, verb, sentences all the time because I find that clauses are sort of that – you know, that wind up that I get lost sometimes. Sometimes the clause doesn't really relate to the subject. It's, you know, the modifier is, is just dangling or it just sort of gets me lost. And I and it's just not as easy to follow. So you don't actually do a lot of clauses. No, I try really hard to avoid <laughs> clauses. And that wasn't me. That was That was something you stopped doing of your own... Course. Well, it makes me really frustrated when I'm reading other people and it takes like four breaths to get through the commas to get to the subject. And so right. I try really hard to like, if I have to take a breath in the middle of my sentence, it's too long. <laughs> and yeah. usually it's because on a dark and stormy night in the middle of nowhere on right. the third day of June on the, you know, it's like. And then you're like, where, where the hell why am do I? I care anymore? Like, <laughs> But I, don't, I think people think it adds a flourish or something. And, and actually, I don't know if you feel this way. I feel like the longer we're in this, like. The, the sparer and simpler we can be in our storytelling, the more effective it is. And so it's sort of like get all the decoration away. Don't try too hard. Let it be as, you know, again, there's something, there's a reason why the subject goes first and then the verb and then you keep the sentence going. It just, it keeps the reader grounded and makes you, you know where you are, you know what's happening. Invariably, you can write that clause a different way. You can tack it on to the end of the sentence and it'll make it an easier read. So um, talk about looking for echoes, empty phrases, and needless attribution. So echoes, um, which I, I know we've talked before about reading out loud, um, but I, reading out loud is the best way to find problems in your story sometimes. You just you hear things that you, you might not see. And so when you have an echo, if it's not purposeful, sometimes the writer might be trying to do a purposeful echo um, because that's just the way, you know, you're trying for something. But if you're not trying for that, then you want to get that out of people's heads. Um, You know, empty phrases. If the plan accomplished nothing else, Jones said, it would give Tampa a sense of balance. Well, if the plan accomplished nothing else, I mean, again, a lot of it sounds like journalese, right? Things that we got to get used to doing. Um, okay, uh, monotony, over-explaining, and wordiness, right? You're wordy sometimes. I do. <laughs> I have to give you something to do, Maureen. <laughs> she gives me things to do. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, look look for simplicity again. Are you using, you know, well, again, when you read it out loud, I think a lot of times you can see where it's taking, if you're running out of breath, as Lane said, you know, stop. <laughs> stop yourself. <laughs> um, we, we pay a lot of attention to pace and pace of a story. Um, obviously, again, you want to keep the momentum, right? But uh, we're reading for that. We're looking for that. Long sentences actually speed up your story. Short sentences slow them down. It may seem counterintuitive, but it, short sentences force you to pause, right? So if you have a really dramatic moment and you want to slow it down, then you know you 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 create some pause. If you have a moment where you really want people to roller coaster and go fast, you could do a really long sentence and build that kind of momentum. So look for that kinds of things, right? Um, talk about redundancies. Uh, so. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Here are some of my favorites. Acres of land, advance warning, armed gunman, regular routine, exceedingly rare, end result, absolutely essential, brief moment, gather together, Newborn baby, tiny bit, unexpected surprise. Newborn baby. <laughs> I guess it's like a George Carlin list, you know, except without the profanity. Do you look for those? Do you catch those? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, Do you find yourself writing them still? Oh, I still write them. And I, I usually hear them more than I see them. You know, even if I print the story out and read it, I don't, I don't catch them as much as when I hear it out loud. Right. You know? Right. And then we go, wait, what? Yeah. You lose that. <laughs> Which may not seem like a big thing, but it just sharpens your story a little bit more and a little bit more, you know? Um, and actually, every time I read Acres of Land, it just pokes me in the eye now. So, like, it's like if, it's like if they wrote it in bold and 18-point type, and it's just like, as opposed to what? Acres of what? <laughs> So, all right. Unnecessary qualifiers. So, again, another George Carlin list, right? Avoid very, extremely, really, rather, somewhat, quite, truly, basically, totally. How's that? It's a pretty good list. (laughs) I think that's another filter that you could like edit through these words. Okay, out of here. Talk about hedging. Do you need every some, might, may, could? I think some writers, not always, but I think sometimes when you're writing, it feels comfortable to add that hedge. And then invariably I'll ask and you guys will say, nah, I don't need that. I mean, it's just there, right? I think a lot of that sometimes is like covering your own butt. You know, right. like I want to make sure you don't think that like every boy on the soccer team, right. you know, was came from this school, you know, like. Right. But it does. It takes away from the authority of the writer, too, when you're mm-hmm. hedging about that, you know. Um, I'm looking for what I call show me. Uh, I can't see generosity, but I can see someone forking over a $20 bill, right? So if you tell me things about someone and you have a way to show it to me, show me instead, right? Um, Don't sandwich key details in the middle of a sentence. Sometimes people do that where they, you know, um, the most important things in your sentence should be at the start and at the finish, Right. The stuff in the middle is the stuff that's not quite as important to me. Again, it's all that momentum. And you want I want to leave a lane sentence 
launching into the next one or a paragraph launching into the next one and feeling like we're building momentum, right? Um, I switch my sentences around a lot in the editing part because I want to end on the stronger word. Right. So if I have a really good, even if it's just, even if it's just a word, you know, like, then I want to end on that word. So I'll go back and rewrite it right. you know, in the editing part. And even just taking the attribution and putting it in the middle, uh, there's, that's a sort of a thing we fall into a lot of times where you, if you find that you move it toward the middle and suddenly you have a much stronger sentence. When you talked about quotes at the beginning here too, but I also think, you know, it's, it's so much better most of the time to paraphrase a quote, you know, yeah. and to have that authority, not to have to keep saying she said, he said, right. whatever. Well, that's the other know. thing it sets you free from, right? Yeah. Not having to have all that attribution. Yeah. Periods. I mean, we, you talked about this earlier, but I think a lot of times these sentences, we, we try to put too much into a sentence. And then, then it's a combination of commas and this, that, and the other thing, and it's rambling, and it's not easy to follow. Um, so I think a lot of times when we're listening, we stop and say, oh, let's make that two sentences, because it's just clearly much easier to follow. That also helps you get rid of clauses. Right. Um, long titles. Um, I always encourage people to think of the reader, not the source. I think we write for our sources too often. You know, we might somebody and you, you, you all have done this. You all have put in some crazy title that somebody has because you knew that you, they were going to be they wanted the crazy title in there. But um, it just slows you down again. You know, uh, number soup. Uh, try to keep the numbers down per sentence. So if you find yourself with one that's got a bunch in there. Uh, uh, just stop that. Uh, find a simpler way. Uh, or make a by the numbers box. Or make a that's by helped the me a lot. Yeah, because I feel like in a lot of stories there, there's you know a good half dozen numbers you got to include for some reason or other. Right. And usually my tendency is to want to like cram them all in one place so I don't have to deal with them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so if I can break them out and make a by the numbers box, it really feel, it feels like it frees me up. You know. Right. Um, so melodrama, I'm looking for melodrama and trying to cut it out all the time, what, what Lane calls her hallmark moments. Um, and, you know, especially, again, the more dramatic a story is, the less you need of that, right? To me, that's the, that's the, that's the TV announcer voice. Um, in fact, Lane and I, we had a session years ago with Walt Harrington, who used to be a great reporter for the Washington Post. And, and that's, he, he would say, better melodrama than no drama. But if you have drama, you don't need to amp it up. You know, I don't need you as a reporter coming in and giving me the, the soundtrack, you know, ta-da. Because um, I get it. <laughs> You know, whatever it is, you know. I think readers, too, they, they like to experience that on their own. You know, when they come to right. a part in the story and then all of a sudden they're feeling something rather than you going, oh, my God, this was the worst night in the history. You know what I mean? Like, I think readers like that ownership that they can come and engage in that moment rather than having you tell them. Well, and I, I actually think that was uh, – so David Finkel of The Washington Post, that was his advice. If it reads like a TV announcer would say it, take it out. Really, because, yeah, you're all you're doing is you're amping this up and and you're not letting it. And you write like let the reader I mean, let the reader imagine this horrible thing that you're about to put them in or this set of circumstances that they're about to read about. Um, make sure your pronouns and subjects is clear who you're talking about. Right. A lot of times you'll stumble over who the he is. Um, Passive voice and weak verbs. Uh, Jackie Banashinsky does this great thing where she tells people to go back through and then circle all their verbs in a story and then look specifically to that 
And are, are you picking the most powerful one? And I wouldn't say pick ones that are unusual words, but maybe words that are not used as often, right? I, I did that. I remember the first story I did that with for you. I did a verb check like that, and it totally elevated my story. Yeah. Is about that old lady who lived on the oceanfront. Oh, yeah. And I wrote something about her yarn. And it wasn't yarn. It was something. Her memory's unspooling. And I'd never used that word. And I, I first said something like she was piling her memories. And I was like, no, they were unspooling like a, a roll of yarn or something. And I was like, oh, I've never heard never before. And I was so excited. <laughs> I found a new verb, you know. I still do that. That's like my usually my first First round of editing, self-editing is a verb check. Well, um, just stop for a second. That story, I still remember that story because that's one of those first stories that I thought, oh, my God, Lane Gregory, she's a special writer. Because it was like it was this little old woman who lived at the oceanfront when there was nothing there. Like in 1922 or something, she right? She lived in the same house for like 60 years, looked out at the same window on the same piece of oceanfront that had changed and immeasurably. Ev- everything came up around her. And this little old lady is still sitting in this house, and she comes in, and you, like, little candies in the dish, and the way you described coming in there, and it was just, it was this great, like... She hadn't been upstairs in 23 years. I remember that detail. She was like, you can look around up there, but I don't know what's up there. I haven't been able to climb those stairs in 23 years. (laughs) But what a great story. It was like... Yeah, and it was very still. You know, I remember yeah. that being, I was worried about that because it's an old lady looking out the window. Like, what the hell is the action here? You know what I mean? And I think that's one reason I really wanted to make good verbs because there wasn't a lot going on, you know. Right. But that was a really, really fun story. But in her and then her telling it and all of that. But you, I remember, like, the way you placed us there, the way it smelled, the way it sounded, the way she behaved, all of that, see, like. Yeah, that's right. Through Mary's I eyes. recognized Lane DeGregory <laughs> before. Yeah, that's what it was called. That was the headline. That was Mary's the first wise. story I ever wrote that I remember people in the newsroom being like, oh, I liked your story. And right. I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> Found its way. It elbowed its way onto the front yeah. page. Yeah. Yes. Um, but that is a good. So back to the verbs. It is a good technique. You know, you, you circle them. You look at them. Are you, you know, can you make them a little less ordinary and, and but not too crazy? Like, um, we used to work with a writer named Earl Swift who would throw words at me that I'd never heard. And I'm like, no, no, I can't do that. And I mean, like, it's like, <laughs> I mean, yes, I want to elevate things and let people go to their dictionary once in a while, but I don't know. Yeah. Um, and then telling details. We've talked a lot about getting details. And I would always argue for coming back with a notebook full of them. But then I would argue for don't give them to me all unless there's a reason for it. And I and when I when I give, give this session, I always joke that I must have removed the color of the car about a thousand times in my career because sometimes it matters and sometimes it just doesn't, you know. And so it, and especially if you're putting two or three modifiers, are they all important? Are they, you know, because you're giving them equal weight and you're forcing readers to put a, get a lot in their heads. So. What's what's really important? And is it germane to the, whatever it is you're writing about? And, and a lot of times I don't know that, you know, until right. I'm, I'm ready to write the story. But it also, I feel like people, and I did this too, you write down details without really knowing what they mean. And you don't go back and ask what they do mean. That's you know? a good point too. right? Because if you don't know, it doesn't hurt to ask. And that's, again, coming back after you've, you know, let the person tell their story. But I remember writing about a man who had a, a ring on a chain around his neck. And I wrote that down. He's wearing what looks like a wedding ring around his neck. And at the end of the interview, I said, is that a wedding ring? Whose wedding ring is that? He was like, yeah. And I said, whose wedding ring is that? He said, it's mine. 
I'm like, why are you wearing your own wedding ring on a chain around your neck? He said, I lost 100 pounds last year, and I haven't got my wedding ring resized. I never would have thought after three hours of interviewing this guy that he lost 100 pounds, but that's like a, that's a whole person he lost. Yeah. you know. And by asking about the detail of the wedding ring, which he never brought up, I got this whole other side to the story. You know, That's a great point, though, because when I have stopped sometimes on a detail, somebody will say they were just fascinated by the detail. But then when you press a little further, you're like, and why does it matter? And and then there was like you could tell that the follow-up question hadn't been answered or we made an assumption about it right. instead of being certain. So, Or you think you can just throw it out and the reader will do what they want to with it. But no, if there's right. meaning behind it, it's your job to find out what that meaning right. is. Right, right. Um, okay, so that's the that's the litany of sort of some things to look for. And again, like I can't emphasize enough how important I think it is to read out loud. And um, I I'm astounded still the number of people that when we're giving talks don't read out loud because I mean what we do it's I mean that's what you're trying to create. You want people to have these stories in their heads, and they're and that's what they're doing. They're actually hearing them in a way in their heads, and so. Um, not only does it help you with the storytelling in terms of, you know, making becoming a more graceful story, but I think it also helps you to spot these these problems. So definitely do it if you don't do it. Um, okay. On that note, if you have any questions on any of the things we've talked about here recently, or you want to suggest a podcast topic, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. Join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next episode. This podcast was produced by Monica Herndon. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.